1: evening, children of the night, and welcome. As of the release of today's episode, Virtual StokerCon 2021 is officially underway. And if you haven't already secured your ticket, you've still got time to get in on all the frightful festivities. And there are plenty of amazing activities this year. From panels and presentations filled with some of the best established and emerging authors in the genre, many who you'll recognize from this show, to breakout sessions to help you hone your writing craft, to the Final Frame Film Festival, and, of course, the annual Bram Stoker Awards. Many of the Tales to Terrify crew will be in attendance, so keep your eyes peeled. I'm excited to see how it all goes down and meet some of the virtual presenters and attendees. If you don't have a ticket yet, you should still be able to grab one at stokercon2021.com. Hope to see you there. Our t-shirt design contest, which I mentioned last week, is also now officially underway. If you've got some horrifying artwork, scary sketches, or dastardly doodlings, why not have them turned into a terrifying t-shirt that other horror fans can proudly wear? Plus, you'll have a shot at an amazing TeePublic prize pack full of delightfully dreadful goodies. One other thing I neglected to mention last week, though, was that you can even earn cash on your submissions. All designs submitted to TeePublic also gain you royalties with every purchase. You know, in case you needed even more reason to get scribbling something shocking you can upload your design to tales2terrify.com designcontest or upload directly to TeePublic, then send us a link to your masterpiece. Again, that's tales2terrify.com designcontest. Lastly, this weekend I'll be packing up and sending off our latest round of swag for Patreon fans, featuring the amazing occult-inspired artwork of Carly Jessup of Jessup's General Store. This swag pack includes some one-of-a-kind handcrafted prints available only to Tales to Terrify Patreon supporters. Keep an eye on social media for a sneak peek at what's in store. You can also check out Jessup'sGeneralStore.ca to explore all of the cool stuff she makes, or check her out on social media. I've put some links in the show notes. Thanks, Carly and a huge thank you to our supporters on Patreon. You truly keep the dark heart of the show beating, and I can't thank you enough. If you'd like to get in on the goods, you've still got some time. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We've got some plans for updating our Patreon perks later this year, so now's your chance to get ahead of the curve. This week is our last stop in the province of Ontario, and it's one I've been saving for a while. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for cryptids. You know, that mythical diversity of creatures that seem to both fill endless volumes of lore, not to mention people's nightmares, but that also somehow seem to elude any kind of empirical evidence of their existence. While monsters like Bigfoot, Loch Ness, or even the Chupacabra are frightening in their own right, there's one creature that's always held a particularly heady sort of nightmare fuel. One that's terrifying not only in its appearance or behavior, but the very nature of its existence. That it strikes when we're at our most vulnerable, and not only attacks its victims, but consumes them. The Europeans of the Hudson's Bay Company called him Jack Fiddler for his ability to both craft and play the musical instrument. But in his native Anishinaabe, his name was Zeowuno Gizigo Gaubo, meaning He Who Stands in the Southern Sky. It was his reputation, though, that made him so well known in the northwestern Ontario communities around Sandy Lake. He was a regular face around the Hudson Bay outpost in the late 1800s, trading furs for hunting supplies and other goods. Growing up in the rugged and unforgiving wilderness, Jack was no stranger to hard work, and being son to the chief of the Sandy Lake people didn't secure him any special treatment. Whether it was hunting in the woods, setting and checking traps, or, after the arrival of the Hudson Bay Company, working on the York boats that carried goods between the outposts and York factory in Manitoba, Jack knew how to keep himself busy. By the time his father died in 1891, making Jack the leader of Sandy Lake and nearby communities, he'd established a reputation as not only a skilled hunter and laborer, but as a talented healer and shaman, too. Someone capable of not only leading his people, but really taking care of them. And while there are many spoken tales of his ability to cure illness, there's a far darker affliction that led those from far and wide to seek his help. The symptoms that had brought Jack and his brother Joseph out to the small home that night was just such a case. This patient, though, was no stranger, no member of a neighboring community or distant household. No, the woman that moaned and writhed in front of him was Joseph's daughter-in-law. Wasaka Pique lay on the bed, forehead beaded with sweat. Her eyes rolled and her teeth gnashed. Worse still, though, In between the cries and shudders, she would have moments of clarity, gasps for help, pleas for release, to put an end to the suffering, to the urges. It was far from the first case of this kind that Jack had been asked to attend, and it wasn't an affliction he'd wish on even his worst enemy, let alone a member of his own family. Wasaka Pequay was battling something far worse than any infection. She was being possessed, taken over by malevolent spirit, having her mind and soul consumed by a Wendigo. Throughout the years, Jack, often with the help of his brother Joseph, had faced and defeated fourteen of the terrifying creatures. And as much as he wished, there was another way. There was only one cure: the host needed to die. If the Wendigo was allowed to win, allowed to complete its possession of Wasikapikwe, not only would she suffer a fate worse than death, but the whole community would be in danger. Wendigo were crafty creatures waiting and watching, stalking their victims, and slipping into their bodies in moments of weakness. Hunger was their strength. It didn't matter whether that hunger was physical or mental, in the dead of winter with food stores running low, or the moment a person gave way to feelings of greed. That crack it created in the psyche was a perfect invitation for the swirling sickness to invade. And once the Wendigo had its claws sunk in, it was too late. The victim would first become weak, feverish, sometimes understanding what was happening to them, even calling out for loved ones to kill them before the transformation could take hold. But before long, their bodies would begin to adapt, become stronger, predatory. And worst of all, they'd be possessed by a singular, insatiable appetite for human flesh. Friends, family, no one was safe. Jack had seen it before, and damned if he would let his own family endure those horrors. Joseph gently but firmly held his daughter-in-law down, heart aching as Jack unraveled a length of thin rope. Jack wrapped each end tightly around his fists, then tenderly, lovingly, looped the dangling length around Wasaka Pequay's neck. She struggled, legs kicking, body bucking against Joseph. She must have been further along in the change than Jack had realized, because she was strong. Too strong. The men struggled to hold her down as she contorted underneath them, fighting to break free, muscles straining and veins bulging. But despite her frantic movements, her eyes remained heartbreakingly calm. Thankful, even. The cord in Jack's hands bit deep into the skin of her neck, his knuckles now white and burning from the strain of pulling. But eventually, her straining body began to slacken, the muscles in her neck and arms softened, and then she went limp. Her movements had stopped entirely. The heaving of her chest had ceased, and her eyes had rolled shut. But still, Jack hung on, pulled just a little tighter for good measure. As I said, Wendigo were crafty, and if he let go too soon, it could be the end for all of them. Finally, he relaxed, letting go of the rope and releasing the breath he'd been holding since Wasaka Pekwe had stopped breathing. The brothers stared at each other for a moment, tears coursing down their cheeks. And then, without a word exchanged, Jack and Joseph together carried her body outside to the bonfire they'd stoked earlier. They placed her carefully on the fire and watched in silence as the flames consumed her, embers drifting up into the night sky, carrying her cleansed spirit. To the happy hunting ground. Eventually, the flames began to die down. Jack wiped the tears from his cheeks and turned to his brother, clasping his shoulder. It was a sad business, but necessary. She was safe now, and so was their community. Of course, when word reached the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, the events took on a much different tone. Two indigenous men and a small northern community had murdered a sick young woman, had strangled her in cold blood, and burned her corpse. In fact, there were rumors that they'd done similar things to 14 other people. Not long after, a contingent of officers rode into Sandy Lake and arrested Jack and Joseph Fiddler. The two men were taken to Norquay House in Manitoba, where they underwent trial without representation. For fifteen weeks the men were held, until one day, while out in the yard under the supervision of a constable, the elderly Jack seized the opportunity to calmly wander away into the forest when the constable's back was turned. His body was later found lying across a rock, with his sash tied tightly around his neck, the other end tied to the trunk of a tree. Joseph was subjected to a full trial, where he was found guilty and sentenced to death. He had substantial support from other members of the community and those of the Hudson Bay Company more familiar with the indigenous customs and they fought for his release after several appeals they were successful but when they arrived at the penitentiary to secure joseph's release they discovered he died 3 days earlier of consumption an unceremonious end for perhaps the most famed and prolific hunters of the deadly wendigo and to be honest It's almost hard to know who the real antagonist of the story is. The cannibalistic monster that stalks the wilderness, possessing those who succumb to hunger? The men who murder potential innocents to protect their people? Or the sweeping persecution and intolerance of colonialism? I'll let you be the judge. We have one tale for you this evening which comes from Timothy G. Huguenin. Timothy grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. Though he often roams the country, his soul is always haunting those dark Appalachian hills. He is the author of the horror novel, When the Watcher Shakes, and of short stories found online and in print. You can find out more about him and his writing at tghuguenin.com. Link is in the show notes children of the night. Join me for Timothy G. Huguenin's Drifting into the Black. First published in Dark Goth Resurrected Magazine, April 2015.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: Din is dead. He was the reason we were all holding together. The reason we are still alive. He was the only one who kept a cool head when the core drive malfunctioned and everything hit the fan. Even Siegfried probably wouldn't have made it if it weren't for him. But now he's gone. About five days ago, he and Siegfried were about to infiltrate the bridge and get the nav back online or at least get it running enough to get some sort of bearing, and also to check and see if there were any pings received in response to the stress beacon. They were ambushed. The captain held them off while Siegfried made it back to the galley doors. The captain ordered him to shut the doors as soon as Siegfried was safe in the galley wing, so they wouldn't be able to penetrate what little territory we had left staked out for us. There are only a handful of us now, maybe twenty. From the beginning, the captain was smart enough to secure us the galley wing so we would have food. We had also tried to keep the bridge, and we'd had it for a few weeks, but they got through one day. Someone was careless and left the door open, and they pushed us back until this is all we have left. Sometimes I wonder, we do have G-Wing, but maybe that is more tragedy than hope. Perhaps, in some ways, the captain was one of the lucky ones. I ask myself all the time if I would rather die by their hand or starve to death when food runs out. Either way, it would be better than becoming one of them. Or would it? Would I even know? Do they remember who they once were? They must not have lost all intelligence, as it's apparent that they have at least some aptitude for military strategy. Still, even that is limited, and it is mostly their sheer number that gives them their advantage." I have heard that a few of them have weapons, but I doubt that they still work. Even if they have any guns, they are locked out of the armory. They would have to open the armory doors to recharge the guns, or obtain new ones. And only the captain and Siegfried have bio-access to those doors. And the captain's dead now. Weapons or not, they are ruthless. I know I would have to think twice before killing ones who were once friends or acquaintances. They do not. Do they remember? Would I remember? Siegfried is ready to go to sleep. I'm going to join him. Siegfried, Carmen, and I went on another op to the bridge. Carmen had done some recon, and we had a pretty educated guess as to when they slept, avoiding their typical swarms. We did, in fact, encounter one on patrol, but Siegfried caught him coming around the corner and snapped his neck before he could alert others. It had been Tony... And I cried a little as we kept on our way, disturbed by the image of Siegfried coldly, efficiently executing one who was once our chief engineer, our friend. We used to play hollow squash together, Siegfried, Tony, and I. We ate meals together. We came close to the bridge, and we saw something laying in the flickering hallway. Siegfried came upon it first, and he told Carmen and me to look away, so, naturally, we inspected it further. It was a piece of flesh, a dismembered arm. At first, I suspected one of them had turned on their own. It wouldn't have been surprising. They were unified, yes, but they were not loyal. Maybe the one we had just killed down the hall—I have to try so hard not to call it Tony— had turned on its buddy for a little midnight snack while on patrol— I guessed it hadn't been hungry enough to finish the job. But the pool of blood around it had dried up. So then I figured it must not have been so recent. Carmen gasped and then threw up. And that's when I noticed the familiar Captain's insignia on the shoulder, just below where the appendage ended and the crusty blood began. My stomach turned. But I managed to keep it in. And Siegfried put an arm around me and whispered in my ear. And that helped. So we got to the bridge... We had no luck in giving Nav up. My heart leapt when I heard Siegfried utter a hopeful grunt while he was checking the distress beacon for return pings. Never mind, he said. It was just some sort of radiation interference. A star we passed long ago. I let out a long breath I didn't know I'd been holding. How are we doing? He said, typing something at the main computer. I want to run diagnostics on the core drive. Fine, I think... I started, but then Carmen signaled from her post. No. Looks like we might have some company soon. We knew better than to press our luck. What with the captain's dismembered arm right outside the bridge entrance to remind us what happens to those whose luck falls short. We beat it out of there, and I would thank God we weren't seen, if he exists, and if he's on our side. This is something I don't have much faith in, because Bishop Heller is now one of them. Or was, if he's still living. He's not Bishop Heller anymore, though. It's not even a he. Hell soul is with God now, maybe. Maybe the soul leaves when it happens, and it's just the body and the crazed, blackened mind. I wonder, does it happen all at once? Or do small pieces of your soul go, one at a time, along with your sanity? We're down to fourteen now including the five we had rescued from the passenger deck, so nine total that are experienced in close combat. We've been training four of the five civilians as well. The other is only a baby. Raymond, of fifteen years, is quick to learn, and he shows great strategic capacity. I'm so sad to see such a bright young boy's life wasted on this. These last futile months or weeks we have left in this death hole of a ship. Siegfried told me last night that there still may be hope for our rescue. He says if we can reactivate the core drive, fully or even partially, and if we can also lock off the bridge, perhaps we could chart a course back to the nearest inhabited star system. But I'm running out of hope for any sort of rescue. We've been drifting out here for a very long time now, in the furthest edges of the universe as we know it. And even if we could execute his plan, what will we eat? The reserve rations are starting to run very low. Something else has been bothering me with all this talk of rescue. This trauma we're experiencing has had at least one positive effect. Though we may go to our death, we do it together. And sharing in this horror has brought an intimacy among us that remain that we would not have shared otherwise. More than that, it gave me Siegfried. And it gave Siegfried me. And I love that. But there is something in me that is terrified of rescue more than death, because I wonder if he will tire of me out there in the real world or we can relax and our focus turns from survival to the more frivolous amusements of ordinary life. Our love was born of this nightmare. If we awake from it, will we also awake from our love? Our recent forays to the bridge have betrayed our plans to them. Carmen had gone on recon, and she told Siegfried today that they must have realized the bridge's importance to us, because many of them have taken up residence there. So even if we went out while they slept, they are everywhere, and they've also increased patrol numbers in that area. Their insanity gives their body strength, and the numbers make them unbeatable. Even if we could get to the bridge, we couldn't hold it, she said. I told Siegfried that maybe we should just give up and try to spend the rest of our short days locked up in G-Wing in peace. Siegfried gave me a look of pity. We can't give up, he said. What if they take you, I said. What if they do you like they did the captain? If we give up, though, we still die. Either way. Well, I would rather you die with me here, together, away from them. I would rather have that than have to face the rest of my short life alone, with my memory of you putrefied by the images of them feasting on your warm flesh. But what if it works? He took my shoulders with his hands. What if we get rescued? He paused, but I didn't answer. Yes, what if... He continued, Honey, I can't just give up knowing that there still may be a chance to save these people. It's my duty. I have to do it for them. And for the captain. I just turned away. The baby died. They didn't get her. She just died in the night. It's probably just as well. Maybe the baby was smarter than the rest of us. Maybe she knew what is coming. The mother, Sheila, is not taking it very well. Siegfried has come up with a plan. Since we cannot take the bridge by force unarmed, he's turned his attention to accessing the armory. We hadn't considered trying it before, because it is on the other side of the ship. Also, Siegfried is now the only one who can open the doors, and if the bio locks will only work if he's alive to open them, he thought it would be foolish to risk an operation like that, because if he died on the way, the rest of the team would be sitting ducks, cut off from both Chi wing and the weapons. But now, he says, it may be our only option. Furthermore, he thinks that since they have devoted so much effort into trying to secure the bridge, perhaps they will not have thought that we may have the courage, or desperation, I said, to try a raid on the armory. They might not even know its significance if their minds have been so lost to have forgotten. He pointed out. Maybe they have, but maybe they haven't, I said. Maybe they are smarter than we think they are. But he says there's probably no other way. Carmen agrees with him. He's thinking that once we get to the weapons, we will be able to secure a route from there to the bridge, and from there, we can again secure the route from the bridge to the galley wing. Then we can regroup while he uses the computer on the bridge to run a diagnostic on the core drive. Once we find out what is wrong with the ship, we will be able to draw up a plan for assault on engineering. When we have engineering, we can fix the core drive. And if we can lock down the line from the engine room to the bridge to the armory, and also the G-Wing for food, we may be able to get moving again, marooning them in the rest of the ship to eat each other until we find rescue. Siegfried says it will take another week to plan and to prep everyone. Raymond is excited and anxious. Like a boy getting ready for his first date. He doesn't know what he's getting into. The poor kid. And he probably will never go on another date again. The food ran out today. Siegfried says we have to leave tomorrow. Two days earlier than planned. He says it's now or never. I guess he's right. He also says that now we're going to have to figure out a way to take engineering at the same time as the bridge and get the core drive operational immediately. Time is against us now more than ever. I told him. Won't that spread us out too thin? It was a risky enough plan as it was, but he says we don't have a choice, and I suppose he's right. I told him I was still afraid of losing him, but he said, smiling, Don't worry. There is too much at stake for me to let them kill me. These people need me. I wanted to assume that I also had something to do with those stakes, but I didn't press the matter. I had a terrible dream last night. They were everywhere, and so was I. And the captain was there, and... But it's too hard to write. I woke up sweating. I just laid there the rest of the night, staring at the ceiling, listening to Siegfried's steady breathing and my unsteady pulse, too terrified to close my eyes again. There is a system of maintenance crawl spaces, walking tunnels, and catwalks on the ship. There is an access point just outside the doors of G-Wing, and there is another outside the armory, only 15 meters from the doors. Siegfried and Carmen have been talking about using the maintenance access system to reach the armory, bypassing scores of them until we could get fairly close. The only problem with this plan is that, for a while, nobody was sure how to actually get into the system. The doors had bio-locks that only the engineering crew and a few others could access, so that people couldn't go sneaking willy-nilly around the ship without surveillance, in case the ship had been infiltrated by spies or plans of mutiny were spread. If I have access to the armory, surely I'll have access to a simple crawl space," Siegfried said. He and Carmen were hunched over a schematic. Their heads were almost touching. You mean you don't know? Carmen said. I wonder if she could feel the heat coming off of Siegfried's face. Tiny beads of sweat lined the creases in his forehead. I've never tried. Never needed to. Carmen said it would be worth the risk for him to sneak just outside of G-Wing, see if he could open it himself. It would only take a few minutes. I said he shouldn't risk it, but he thought it was a good idea. Through some sort of oversight, or some other reason, the hatch wouldn't open for him. This was unfortunate since the only other person we were certain had access was Tony, and Siegfried had killed him a while back. Not that he would be any help in the state he was in, anyhow. This brought a standstill to the whole maintenance access plan, and they had almost resigned themselves to trying to get all the way to the armory through the infested corridors until Siegfried remembered something. The manual override. There's a manual override switch on the bridge. No, it's too risky, Carmen said. Not with all of them in there. Riskier than trying to make it all the way to the armory? Nobody had eaten in over ten hours, so people were testy. And even Carmen and Siegfried had become incensed over the issue. Voices rose over how we would really make it without those tunnels. But it was our only chance, you know. But it wasn't our only chance, because we still have the manual override. But Then someone would have to be able to enter the bridge without arousing any of them, which was next to impossible. And well... It was next to impossible to make it to the armory otherwise, and so on, until finally Raymond spoke up in the midst of the din. I'll go. Everyone stopped and stared at the boy. You don't know what you're saying. Carmen said. You're just a kid. It's out of the question. I saw my parents ripped apart and made a meal to those monsters while I cried in the closet. I need this. Nobody said anything, so he continued. If I don't do this, and we somehow make it, I won't be able to live with myself. But if I do it, and I die... At least I'll die knowing that I wasn't a coward in the end. And if I can activate the switch and I still live, all the better. He's right, you know, Siegfried told Carmen. And as young as he is, even without experience, he has the lightest feet of us all. They should be sleeping now. And what about patrols? I can take care of them, Raymond said. Siegfried's taught me well. So then, after a little more debate, it was settled that Carmen would go with Raymond, both of them having memorized the override code. There was a moment when Siegfried and Carmen looked at each other before they left, and something about it made me uncomfortable. Maybe I am imagining things. I probably am, but I didn't like it all the same. There had to be someone at the maintenance hatch when Raymond put in the code, because it gives only a thirty-second window before it relocks itself. It gave them a few minutes' head start. Then Roscoe, one of the old ship crew, and I sprinted as quietly as possible to the tiny door and waited. We both knew it would be locked, but we still looked eagerly, hoping by some miracle the signal light was already green. It was red. We checked again for patrols and then pressed ourselves against the door, making ourselves as small as possible, hoping that the shadows and the spastic flicker of the lights would hide us if they happened to come by. We were out there for probably fifteen minutes, although it felt like several hours, and still we hadn't been discovered. Fortune seemed to be on our side. At this point, the plan rode on a lot of luck, and the scenario of a patrol finding us, our only option was to try to overtake them in hand-to-hand and hope there was not more than two coming. I thought I heard footsteps coming down the hall from around a corner. I looked at Roscoe. Neither of us dared to speak, but his eyes told me that he heard them too. We held our breaths as we listened to them approaching. Roscoe was about to slip up close to the corner so that he would have a jump on them. Then I heard a quiet, metallic sound. The light went green. Quickly, we opened the hatch, ducked inside, and shut it behind us, locking it. We sat silently, with our ears pressed up against the hatch, straining to hear the footsteps of the patrol. The pace didn't change, so they must not have seen or heard us. My stomach rumbled, despite my nerves. I tried not to think about the fact that I hadn't eaten in a day. Eventually, the footsteps died away. Roscoe peeked out. The coast was clear. I held the hatch open while he crept down the hall as fast as he could, knocked on G-Wing, and let the rest out. They all ran to the hatch, Siegfried bringing up the rear, worrying more about speed than stealth at this point. Soon all eleven of us were packed inside, relatively safe for the time being. It was hot, and smelled of staleness and electricity and metal and body odor. The crowded space was dimly lit by eerie blue floor lights. How long do we wait for Carmen and Raymond? I whispered to Siegfried. Before he could answer, we heard three quick taps on the other side of the hatch, then a pause, then two more. They were here. I opened the hatch and pulled Raymond and Carmen inside. They were both breathing heavily. Raymond's hair shone sweaty in the blue light, and on his face was a smile of both thrill and relief. They were all over the floor in there, said Carmen. I almost tripped over one said Raymond, catching his breath. I stepped on his shirt, but he didn't wake up. I fell, but caught myself on the console. He was laying right under me, snoring like crazy, and it smelled like rotten meat. The whole place smelled like that. They were everywhere. Did you run into any patrols? Siegfried asked. There were two guards outside the bridge, Carmen said. We each took one out without them raising an alarm. The kid did good. Great job, Siegfried said with a grin. I'm proud of you. This was probably directed toward Raymond, but I felt like he could have been more specific. As we were leaving, we heard doors open on the other side, Raymond said. By now I'm sure they've already come through and found the others we killed. If they're hungry, they won't resist an easy meal. That might buy us some time, but they definitely will know something's up. It's all right. They won't know where we're headed. For all they know, we killed those guards, then got spooked and retreated back to G-Wing. Well, we better get a move on instead of chatting here in front of this door, Roscoe said. Liable there'll be more of them coming by and will hear us. Right, said Siegfried, and we made our way down the tunnel. It wasn't small enough that we had to crawl yet, but we did have to travel single file. I moved up the line so that I was behind Siegfried. How well do you know how to navigate these? I asked him. I'm kind of going by my gut, he said. But based on where I know G-Wing is in relation to the bridge and engineering, I think we should be directly above the engine room very soon. As he said that, the tunnel opened up to a room with a metal spiral staircase. He turned to Roscoe. As soon as we have the weapons, you're going to take Raymond and four others back through the tunnels until you get to this staircase. It should come right down into the catwalks above the engine room. Roscoe and Raymond nodded. You'll have guns, but only fire if you have a clear shot. We don't want anything going off wrong and blasting something we really need. There shouldn't be very many of them down there, but make sure the area is secure and lock down all access points. Once you've done that, get to work on trying to fix the core drive. Got it, boss. Roscoe said. He turned and picked out four others for his team. Good. The rest of you stay with me all the way to the bridge, unless I say otherwise. Don't get separated. For now, everyone, come on. We've got to get to the armory. We continued through the tunnels, turning left here, right there, up this ladder, through that crawl space. It was a bewildering maze, and I was glad I wasn't Roscoe, who would have to remember how to get back to that staircase, if we even got the weapons. I kept glancing back at Sheila. She was shaking, and she always had that look of holding back sobs. She was doing better than I expected. Honestly, I felt the way she looked. I was just better at holding it all in. Suddenly, I felt like the others were watching me, too, and I crossed my arms as we walked so no one would notice my hands trembling. We finally came upon the other hatch. Siegfried counted to three with his fingers. Roscoe opened the hatch, and Siegfried and I dashed out towards the armory doors, Roscoe closing the hatch behind us. We heard shouts of surprise, but we didn't turn to look until we got to the biolock scanner. There were three of them bearing down while Siegfried unlocked the doors. The armory opened, and we locked ourselves in. The quickest of the three made it just far enough for his foot to get severed by one of the doors as it closed, and he let out an ear-splitting cry. It was horrifying, but somehow I felt pity on the poor creature. Siegfried wasted no time in grabbing an assault rifle from the chargers and attaching a few grenades to his belt. "'Hey, what's wrong with you? Get over here and get a gun!' he said to me. I had been in a daze, staring at the front half of a yellow foot that was marinating in its own blood. A dread came over me. Those dreams replayed in my mind. They started banging loudly with their fists on the other side of the doors, and it sounded like many more had joined the original three. I began to hyperventilate, and I had to concentrate to regain control. My legs suddenly felt like rubber. This is never going to work, Siegfried. Snap out of it. Here, take this. He threw me a gun. Now open the door and get ready to blast them. With deliberation, I opened the door. Bright flashes of energy burst from the muzzle of Siegfried's weapon, each flash accompanied by the deafening sound of gunfire. Smoke and sparks filled the corridor while both their hellacious screams and their blood spilled freely. It had been the first time I had heard the shouts of war in a long time. Finally, the firing and screaming ceased. I was still standing, dumbly, next to the opening. What are you waiting for? Go on! I came to myself, ran out to the hatch and knocked. Everyone spilled out. Except Sheila, who was sitting there and whimpering. It's all right. Stay here and open the hatch back up when Roscoe and his team return. I told her. I shut the hatch on her and ran back to the armory. We closed the doors while everyone loaded up as much firepower as each man or woman could handle. Siegfried grabbed a small pistol and handed it to Roscoe. Give this to Sheila, but keep the safety on. Keep her with your team, but it might be better for everyone if she stays at the staircase until you've gotten the engine room locked down. Roscoe nodded. With everyone fully equipped, we opened the doors, braced for assault. None of them had yet come down this far to investigate the racket Siegfried had made. I guess he had been right about them overlooking the armory. Roscoe and his team ran back to the hatch, knocked, and went in. The rest of us were on our own in the smoking, body-littered hall. Siegfried looked us over. Carmen, you and I are up front. Alex, Rachel. He pointed to the twins. You two watch our flanks. He looked at me. You and Roger will bring up the rear guard. We moved out, shutting and locking all doors that did not lead to the bridge. We worked quickly at first, since there were few of them nearby. However, the further we got from the armory, the greater the resistance. They came in hordes, yelling, running straight at us, reckless. Despite our heavy firepower, sometimes their multitude would overwhelm us, and often we would find ourselves taking them on hand to hand. Now we had knives, too, and so went our task of butchering the brutes who were quick enough to get through our guns. It was tiring and gruesome work. The fighting thickened. The air smelled like smoke and rancid flesh and blood and vomit. They were coming from all sides, opening doors we hadn't yet locked. It came to be more than I could bear. My nightmares kept flashing through my mind, and I would close my eyes and see the captain. Then I would open them and see them racing at me, trampling the bodies of their fallen kin. I felt like screaming, Stop! Stop! But I couldn't hear anything except gunfire and their howling. I dropped my gun and crouched down, closing my eyes tightly and putting my hands over my ears. My mouth was moving, but no words were coming out. Or maybe there were. I'm really not sure. Everything else gets... Pretty hazy, because soon after that I blacked out. I woke up in the bridge. There were dead bodies everywhere. I sat up and leaned on my arms. Hey! She's awake! Carmen was sitting there, watching me. Roger was at the other side of the bridge, fiddling with a computer. Where's Siegfried? I asked Carmen. He's in the engine room with Roscoe's team. They're having trouble finding out what's wrong with the core drive. I'll get him on the con if you want. No, that's fine. I shook my head. My mind was foggy and I was trying to remember what had happened. It still fades in and out, even now. You okay? Roger said as he came over. You kind of went a little crazy back there. I... I don't... I'm starting to remember. What happened? Did everyone make it? Everyone is okay, besides a few bruises and cuts. And one of us passed out, Carmen said, smiling softly. Roscoe's team had an excellent tactical advantage from the catwalks. Secured engineering with no problem. We were able to lock down the path from the armory to the bridge. Siegfried opted to forget about the galley, at least for now, since there's no food in there anyway. I nodded. My head was throbbing, so I lay down again. My stomach rumbled. We're going to starve, I said. Don't worry about that, said Carmen. Siegfried and Roscoe will have everything fixed in no time. The intercom crackled. What was that? Carmen said. Sheila! Is she with you? Came the fuzzy message. Negative. She's not on the bridge. Spread. For her. We can't hurt. Say again? The comm is screwing up. Missing. We need... and search The tunnels, maybe. Carmen and Roger looked at each other, alarmed. Then Carmen looked at me. I'll be fine by myself. Go find Sheila. She didn't seem well earlier. Carmen and Roger picked up their weapons and left the bridge. They've been gone for a while now, and my head has finally stopped pounding when I get up. My stomach hasn't quit hurting, though. It seems like forever since the last time I've eaten. Outside the window, I see nothing but black. I can hardly look away. It is unreal. No stars, no planets, no nebula. Nothing but blackness. I feel like I could cut a hole in the window, stretch my hand out, and touch it. And I can feel it. Not with my fingertips, but with my body. No, my mind. It weighs down on me longer as I gaze upon the void. My heart rate and breathing start to race, and my forehead is sweaty and cold. And in my belly, I can feel it. This oppressive shadow. It's what drives my hunger. Because of this blackness, our food stores have run out. Because of it, many that I used to know and love are gone. Because of it, I will never set foot on another planet. I won't even see light from a star. I will die out here. We all will. We all will die. We all. We all. We all. Die. 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 Black. Black in the black. I'm starting to get dizzy. I think I'm going to lie down again and get some rest. I've got to get out of here. Away from this window. It is much cooler here in the armory. It feels nice. I don't know how long I've been here, but I'm feeling much better now. Carmen came in here a little while ago. I was huddled up and sobbing at the time, and I must have looked pretty sorry. She asked me what was wrong. I... I don't know. We found Sheila. She had gotten turned around in the tunnels. She's okay. I ran back to the bridge to check on you and let you know, but you were gone. I was worried. Thanks. I... that's good about Sheila. Are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? No, I'm... I don't know. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in a long time. (sighs) We are all hungry. I'm sorry about that. Siegfried is pretty sure he's close to fixing the core drive. He said it may take him a couple days, but he thinks he knows the problem now. We'll be out of here soon. No, 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 no. I think this is what I said, or something equally moronic. Hey, I've got to get back to the bridge. I'll be there if you want to talk. She turned to leave. Wait, Carmen. Yes? I've been having these dreams, but I'm afraid to talk about them with Siegfried. I'm afraid he'll just think I'm weak or say I'm worrying about nothing. But it's not nothing. She sat down next to me. Tell me about them, she said. I brought Carmen into my confidence, so to speak and she will not share my secrets with Siegfried. I am fairly certain of it. They look at me with shifty, nervous eyes. I do not speak to them much, and they suspect that something is wrong. They are all on edge with each other, too, because the food has been gone. They did get the engine working, though, but it will still be at least a day before there is any chance of contacting another ship, even traveling at full speed. The one who sleeps with me... He's the leader of these. I will go to bed early, as if I am sick. Then later, he will come to bed with me. I will wait until after he sleeps, and they all sleep. He will not be expecting.
1: That was Timothy G. Huguenin's Drifting into the Black, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis Robinson is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he is one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all your favorite podcatchers, this is not your average D&D podcast, as they focus more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign for Season 4, set in 1932 New York City. This season, they ventured into space with more than 50 custom-created alien races. You can watch their show live or catch up over at twitch.tv botchedpodcast. Myself, I've gotten a handful of episodes behind, so if you've been keeping up with Botched, and you should be, no spoilers, okay? Thanks for reading for us, Dennis. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. Tales to Terrify.com slash merch. We'll shoot you over to our Tea Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs. That's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, With original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we satiate your dark hunger with more Tales to Terrify.